Welcome to the Unstoppable Life podcast with Verna Haywood, the original Spice Girl from Grenada, the island of spice and all that nice. I am here to spice up your life with a sprinkle of faith, a dash of hope, and a pint of love. This podcast is a space for every woman and man to grow, not only grow in faith, but grow in wisdom, confidence, and develop their relationships, as well as know their human rights that God gave each one of us. Each week, you will hear topics from women and men to help you build a solid foundation. Now, let me introduce you to my special guest. Hi, everyone. So my guest today is Agape Garcia. She has, she's going to be talking to us today about past post-traumatic growth. And so she has been doing this for a number of years now. So she's going to give us her take on that. And she's going to talk to us about how, you know, domestic violence, how she came through that and how that has helped to be the person that she is today. She is a wonderful lady. When we first met, we had a really good conversation and this program is going to be conversational. So we're just going to allow it to flow and as it uh, develops, we will just ask questions as we go along. So just sit back and listen and just we hope that what you hear today is going to be a blessing to you. Agape, can you tell the audience a bit more about yourself? <laughs> well, thank you for having me on your show and thank you for such a beautiful introduction. I uh, yes, my name is Agape Garcia. I was born and raised in Chicago and uh, made it out in my early 20s, and which I'll share with you later on. Unfortunately, I've had a long life trauma. And so I would have to say that my strength comes from the trauma that I received as a child and am now taking it and converting it into the best thing possible, which is where the post-traumatic growth comes into play. Wow. It's amazing how you, how adversity helps you to grow and develop that inner strength. I mean, if you want to take us a, a little bit more into the different scenarios that you have been through in terms of moving away from that and how we should charge ourselves and get our voice. How, if you want to explain that to us and just tell the audience uh, a bit more about that. Absolutely. Let me first talk a little bit about PTSD because that's what most of everybody knows. Everybody knows what PTSD is, the post-traumatic stress disorder. And there's so many different groups, organizations, and so much so many resources and help out there for those that suffer from PTSD. And we're all made aware of the, the detriments that PTSD has on us mentally, physically, emotionally, economically, and even in our own homes sometimes, you know. And there not a lot of people are familiar with PTG, which is the post-traumatic growth that we're talking about today. And I, and I will say that it is fairly new. It was identified by two psychologists in the early 1990s. Um, I believe their names were Dr. Tedeschi and Dr. Calhoun. So it is fairly new and not a lot of people have been made aware of it. And based on my personal extensive 
extensive research and mm-hmm. actually having people tell me directly that my character is a pure example of post-traumatic growth. My personal definition, just simply put, is that it's a positive, it's a positive psychological shift that any one of us can experience after a life crisis. Going back to what you were saying, it's that resiliency that that we have, right? So with that, I will share the beginning years of my life where trauma first met me. And, you know, that was when I was a toddler. I was about two and a half years old when my mother left. And when she left, she just left with her personal belongings. She left me and my baby sister in the very same environment that she herself was not able to tolerate. And shortly after that, I lost my baby sister to cancer. Within a one year's time or less, I was without a mother, without a sister, and my father had completely checked out. He had just left his, you know, he had just lost his wife and his baby girl, and he was stuck looking at me. And both of my parents were very young at the time. My dad coped the best way he knew how. And he knew that I was his responsibility. But I don't think that he knew really how to have any sort of connection because the way he dealt with everything was working third shift and sleeping all day, which meant that I was left to fend for myself and figure everything out. Because while he was awake, I was asleep. And while I was awake, he was asleep. That is where my journey began of dealing with mental and emotional trauma. At such a young age, I had no idea that my life was going to be full of voids overnight. And I'll say that, you know, when I was as young as kindergarten, back then we were able to walk to school. There were actual crossing guards at streets. It was about a mile away. I walked to and from. Throughout my grammar school years, I spent so much time at the cemetery because it was closer to school than where I live. I would do anything other than to go home because what was there to go home to? Silence. It was so silent. It was loud. I would do homework at the cemetery, bond, have my emotional bond there with my deceased sister, but I at least felt a connection there. I would go to sleep crying. You know, I would I would have to wake up my dad before I went to sleep to make sure he got to work on time. And then I woke up to an alarm clock and he was still not home yet. And it was just so quiet and so lonely. I just remember so many days and nights crying, 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 which is why I figured out how to not be home. So I would be in every after school program that they had available. I would be at the at the rec park doing gymnastics or wood shop or just anything other than to be home. <laughs> So I learned I learned the neighborhood fairly well, learned the streets very quickly. I knew I needed to be home by the time the streetlights came on. For whatever reason, I abided by that, knowing good and darn well nobody was there to make sure. <laughs> I just I just knew, you know, trouble trouble came after the lights went on. So get your butt home. So that was a majority of my grammar school life. I had neighbors and people at school that would call DCFS because of my appearance. My dad was in karate and he roughhoused a little bit too much with me. And there was times I would be marked up and whatnot. Food baskets were sent to the house often and neighbors knew that I was a little girl by myself. And so many neighbors took me in and fed me. And I would have to say, I can't say raise me, not during my grammar school years, but took me in and fed me and sent me back out. (laughs) In my teenage years, and I think everybody can agree that in all of our teenage years, think we know everything and we know not much of anything. (laughs) 
but our character yeah. and our attitude is prideful. And so I, I was surely that because by this time I already had a work ethic. You know, I, I knew how to clean cars, clean houses, babysit, pull weeds, mow lawns. I, I made money to buy groceries and, and things that, you know, young ladies need for themselves. So at this time, I was like I said, I had my work ethics. I already knew the streets fairly well. I knew pretty much the neighborhoods very well. I grew up in a not so great neighborhood. And in my teenage years, this is where I met all of the mothers that I still have today. Even though my mother left, I have so many that I was blessed with throughout my life. And if it wasn't for those mothers during my teenage years, I probably would not have survived the the streets or my own personal life for that matter. Mm -hmm. Like textbook, violence was what I knew. It's what I grew up in. That's what was all around me. So definitely teenage dating was also teenage violence. I dropped out as a sophomore. I just wanted to work and make a life for myself. Unfortunately, the relationship that I was in at that time was very abusive. And he actually ended up turning to the streets during my pregnancy. So I also dealt with a teenage pregnancy. During my pregnancy, we just had a really, a really big falling out where I had to check myself into the emergency room. And I was admitted for quite some time and ended up wearing a heart monitor for the rest of my pregnancy. And it was during that time that I was just, you know, in my thoughts, knowing that I'm about to be a mom. I don't have anything going for myself. I don't want to bring my baby into an environment that I fought or I'm fighting myself to get out of. I definitely wanted to be a mother that was present. I definitely would have loved for her father to be a father that was present. So I just just knew that I was not going to tolerate violence much longer. Of course, it was very scary because I am about to have a baby and I'm not sure if I can do all this by myself. So did I did wait a little while to see and, and hope that things would change. And for all of us that have been in that situation, we know that hope and desire is a lot stronger and bigger than reality. Unfortunately, those things did not change. So when my daughter turned about three months old, I packed my belongings and I took her with and I moved to a basement where there was no heat, just brick walls and cement floor, but there was a bathroom. So I made it like a little studio. It was the most peaceful place. I think that, that we had during that time and we had space heaters. So even though it was in the middle of winter, we were not freezing and there was plenty of blankets. <laughs> so we made the best with, with what we had, you know, did you want to ask any questions? Right. I, I'm just so amazed at how you navigated every, not having anybody around to really help you. But you said something about, you know, when your mom checked out, you had so many mothers. And that reminds me of a, a scripture that says, when your mother and father forsake you, the Lord will take you up. So you will get many mothers and, you know, many, many fathers. And, and that just resonated with me, how you were able, they were able to take you in. Yes, they feed you and then they send you back out. So you were able to have that, to have some, I guess, some mothers in your life that would have helped you in one way or the other. Yes. And I am so thankful for 
I would have to say that I was angry at my mother for most of my life up until I had my first child. Once, you know, my daughter turned one, I tried to reach out to my mother to, you know, let her know that I forgave her and to let her know that that it's okay. Also to let her know that I have no idea how she would, you know, be able to leave her own daughters behind because I know how much my heart was filled through having my daughter. Yeah. And that did not go very well. She was not interested. She, she, she was not interested in that conversation. She just wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I had to accept it for what it was and carry on. And shortly after that, I had decided to go back to school for my GED. I had already knew that I was not going to be with her dad at all because of his violence and personal decision making. And he ended up leaving the States anyways. So I was, you know, left to figure it out at at any rate. And which is fine because for me, it was less drama. But that's what I thought anyways. I had to deal with his mom, which was more drama. But we won't go into that. (laughs) I literally had to call the police. Yeah, it was it was bad. I literally had to call the police several times just to get my daughter back. She was very successful in brainwashing me to making me believe that I didn't know how to be a mom because I didn't have a mom and she's an experienced mom. And it was just so much, so much. Yeah. And and I and I do want to go back to what you said earlier when when you said, you know, the biblical verse where the Lord does restore. And I will have to say tenfold. Absolutely. I did not know that at the time of growing up. But looking back, I feel so loved, blessed and covered by, by our creator, because I know for a fact that those verses are our truth. He, he does follow through with his word. And I am living testimony of that for sure. After I had moved out and went back for my GED and then continued through college and getting my first corporate job, you know, I had moved out of the city, you know, which is called the hood. So I moved out the hood. I was <laughs> at least more than 20 minutes away. You know, I had us set up fairly nice where the school was across the street from our apartment. You know, my support system was three blocks west and my job was three blocks east. So even if my car were to break down, I would not miss work. She would not miss school and everything would be okay. Here I am working full time. I'm in school part time. I'm, you know, taking care of my daughter all the time. I have my stuff together. You you couldn't tell me that I did not have my stuff together. I felt like I was finally like being fulfilled through having a daughter, a child of my own. I I was a mom now. I was a responsible human being. I made it that far without having my parents active in my life or without them helping me actively throughout my life. And I had, you know, accepted who my mother is and was going to be forever. And I I partially named my daughter after my my sister. So I felt that that connection was even tighter. So I just felt like I was on top of the world. I was doing it. And yes. um, and then so, and then yeah, I met something someone. happened. <laughs> and then I met someone. Yes. <laughs> and that changed everything. Back then, 20 years ago, there was not the accessibility to do background checks and to see what their life is about and who their family 
is and what kind of, you know, greatness or not so greatness are they a part of? Those things were just not readily available because I had my stuff together for whatever reason. I believe so today. You know, I met coworkers, I met family, I met friends. There was nothing that seemed out of the ordinary. Don't forget being in the hood. We are raised to have situational awareness, to be able to to look at, at behaviors and determine if there's danger around there or not. And so, you know, applying all of these things that were basically hereditary to me, I didn't I didn't see anything to, to concern myself with. So not too long, about a year and a half after we met, was pregnant with my second child. During that same time frame, at about three months, at about the three month mark, I had developed chicken pox during my pregnancy. And meanwhile, he was was offered a position in another state. That offer was on the table. I had it. I had a choice. I had a decision. I could have accepted or denied. But naturally, I accepted. Of course, <laughs> you know, I, I did. And so, agreement was that he would he would go first, get settled, and then when it was time to find a place, I would I would fly out and we would find a place together. And that I needed time to give my notice and to make sure that you know my daughter didn't miss too much of school. Everything had to be planned out. You know, I'm, I'm a planner. I ended up driving across country at seven months pregnant with my daughter. And it took about three weeks for our belongings to arrive at our new home. So during those three weeks, my focus was getting her settled at her new school, learning who my doctors were going to be packing the refrigerator in the kitchen and just kind of getting as settled as I could while I waited for my personal belongings. When those belongings arrived, I was super excited to get unpacked because I just needed to get all of our stuff where it belongs so I can start my nesting process because I'm already at eight months at this point, you know? I'm happily putting stuff away and while I'm in the bathroom finding finding space under the sink, I come across belongings of another woman and I said, oh my gosh, what the heck is this? My eyeballs are out of my my face. My heart is pounding through my chest. My my thoughts are running rampant. You know, who did he have over here? Who Who visited? Why don't I know? Am I assuming? I don't I don't want to think the worst. I just left everything. This cannot be what I think it is. How am I going to address this? When is the right time to address this? I was tormented all day long. And I, I figured what I would do is just make dinner like normal, do homework with my daughter like normal, just be normal throughout every every step of the of the minute of the day. And then once she goes to sleep, I'll talk to him. So that was my plan. That was my grand plan. So everything turned out that way. <laughs> and then when it came time for me to ask the question. I was just very straightforward with it. I said, I said, while I was putting my belongings away, came across remnants of another woman. And I would like to know what is this? Who does it belong to? And what's this about? And he immediately accused me of going through his personal belongings, which I had to repeat myself and say, no, what I said was I was unpacking. And while unpacking, I found the remnants of another woman. And I'm asking, who does it belong to? What is this all about. And before I was even able to finish repeating myself, I was already on the floor. He was sitting on my pregnant stomach Mm -hmm. and he had his, his left hand around my throat and his right hand closed fist punching me in the head over and over and over. And I heard this voice from the top of the stairs, mom, mom, a voice that I never heard before. I know my daughter's voice, but I've never heard that tone, that sense of fear in her voice. And my mother, 
motherly instincts kicked right in. I, I heard that tone of her voice. I was able to realize very quickly what condition I was in. Out of nowhere, it was like a heat of adrenaline that just like forced itself through me to the point where my feet slammed straight on the floor and and my hips were thrusted towards the ceiling while my neck was used as a kickstand and he he like fell over like over me over my head from you know from my hips being thrusted so far to the ceiling I popped straight up by the time I ran around to the other side of the couch my daughter was already at the bottom of the steps I grabbed her hand and we ran out the door just like that I don't know about 10 30 11 o'clock at night and I ran to the neighbor's house that had lights on and just banged on their door begging if I could please come in and use their phone. I couldn't even explain what happened. I, I just know that, you know, they saw me and I'm there barefoot with my daughter. I'm in tears. I'm pregnant. Of course, they let me in. And so, you know, I did use the phone. I did call the police. I can only remember just crying and crying and crying, feeling like it was taking the police forever to get there. And I didn't know anything. Everything was in a big blur. I, I, I couldn't believe this was my reality. This is this is my environment. I don't have any friends. I don't have any family. This is a foreign place to me. I barely know how to get around the block. I don't have support. I Everything that I just didn't have, I was literally by myself in this situation. Just there was no time to even think logically. It was just all unbelief. It was just all disbelief and complete devastation. So by the time the police got there, there was definite marks on me, which I didn't even know or see myself and pictures were taken. And it was enough for him to be taken away that night. I realized, did ask how long was he going to be kept for? And they did say overnight. So I at least knew, I think they said overnight. I'm, I can't remember, to be honest. I know I didn't sleep mm -hmm. at all that night. I, I ended up yeah. going back home. I ended up going back home and, and creating an escape route with my daughter, just telling her, you know, if I say go, go, go three times, that means open your window, jump on the patio, jump here, jump here. You know, I had to make it. I had to make an escape route and there was no way to make it fun or safe. It just it is what it is. I think the only thing that prevented her from freaking out completely was we're from Chicago. So these types of things are not abnormal. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just abnormal for it to be in my house. So I stayed up all night just doing research. I was trying to figure out, you know, what were the laws in the new state that I was in? What should I expect? What can I do? What's available? I, I just... I had no idea if it was going to be 24 hours, 48 hours, no idea whatsoever. I just knew that I was going to have a baby in 47 days and I needed to figure something out quickly. It was not a weekend. It was a weekday. So I did take my you know, daughter to school the next day and immediately checked myself in at the emergency room to see you know, how my unborn baby was doing. It was during that hospital stay that I received a phone call from the police department that was giving me you know, information on his booking and information as to where I can stay in touch to learn about the status, if there's been any status updates or changes, right? So I was able to convince the doctors to give me an early C-section because I believed that my baby was going to be in a better condition outside of my body based on the stress levels that I was dealing with. Um, you know, money was a problem because I had used my money to move, not inexpensive, it's, you know, across country. Plus I had a car payment. I had things I still needed to get for, you know, my baby. 
and I'm out there now on my own. Again, I just I just did so much research to see what was available and I'll it's 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 37 days worth which I won't go through every day of course because there's just so much involved and I'll try to condense it down as much as possible. I mean, I started packing my stuff right away. I didn't even get a, a chance to finish unpacking. You know, I still had stuff in boxes that didn't even get a chance to be unpacked. So I found a storage room close by and anything that I could carry was put in the storage room. Anything I could not carry used to to barricade the door or to be left behind or sold. I went straight to the leasing office with all my paperwork showing, you know, what had happened and to get my name off the lease so I could move forward when it was time, you know, with my kids without my without my name being damaged by an eviction. I could not get a job. I was eight months pregnant. There was nobody that was going to hire me. I stood in line at the county office to see what type of assistance I could I could apply for, you know, food stamps, financial assistance, anything that was available. That's not a short process. That's a link process. You have to stand in line. You have to apply. You have to wait. You have to get called and follow up. You know, my phone, my phone got turned off. You know, my electricity got shut off. I mean, there were so many things that I was dealing with. And this was before the baby even was born and just trying to find a way how I was going to make it. And then once I did have the baby, then what was I going to do? You know, I was also scheduled to testify against the guy. You know, I say the guy, but he was my fiance. He's the father of my son. I thought that I was strong. I felt like I was ready to testify. I I was there. I was talking to the DA. I was on the stand. I was ready to speak into the mic. He walked in. And when he walked in, I say I shrunk like a punk, you know, like I just, my shoulders caved in. My head went down. I felt sick to my stomach. I almost felt like a scared, like a scared little girl. And I had no idea what was going on, how that was happening, why I felt paralyzed and unable to have that, that strength and that voice that I did just 10 minutes prior to. I was very, very angry at myself for quite a long time about that because I couldn't control it. And I had no idea where that came from. I learned later that that's something that is natural and that I hope still to this day that they're considering that and not making the victim, you know, be reacquainted or re-identified per se by the by the attacker. I just feel like it's unfair. It's almost like re-victimizing person. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I know that my and I know that my testimony wasn't as strong as I could have been as that should have been. Who am I when it comes down to a double attempted homicide? You had no care for your own unborn child, your only son. If you're capable of doing that, I don't sit anywhere on the totem pole. Definitely fear is a big component to all of that. And as courageous as one could feel, that's when once you are confronted with that individual again, and they're in front of you, you know, some of us go through a, a whole different response. Yeah, it's a whole different story when that person is in front of you, you you lose all sense of strength and identity of yourself. I am um, I understand. I understand where you're coming from when you say 
say that because to have that violence against you and uh, an unborn child is thankfully that you you took swift swift action that you're and remove yourself from the situation as opposed to stay in the situation because some women might have thought well I, I'm new to this place I don't know anyone I can't go anywhere and they will probably stay in that situation and their children will be abused and the the unborn child will be understanding from within your womb about what trauma is because not only are you experiencing the trauma but the baby is also experiencing that trauma as well I am really oh god I can't find a word now to say how much I appreciate you for for saving yourself and giving yourself and your children the gift of life because that's so important with that what would you say to women who might be thinking well I mean you have said it in making a decision that you have to take action um, and that has led you into doing the great work that you're doing now in terms of your consultancy in terms of the training that you're doing all the different programs that you have put together so you can help others who are going through their own personal struggles how to to turn their lives around I'll be honest that you know this scenario was 20 years ago so I'm bringing 20 years of boots on the ground experience and wisdom to all the listeners and anyone who you know signs up for any of my programs you know I would have to say that survival is a natural response a survival mode that mindset that extreme independence extreme independence is a trauma-driven response which is completely human and natural I pride myself in being extremely independent however it has worked against me in a lot of areas in my life it has definitely kept me isolated and keeping that barrier of trusting again very much so in front of me you know not everything that seems great at the moment is a long-term greatness. What I will say is that, you know, when you are in a situation where it is a life crisis or a traumatic event, it is hard to think logically. And if you have the ability to separate your emotions and think with logic, you will most likely be in a better space and place immediately and long-term. In my situation, with, you know, survival, it was also desperation. I knew that I had no one. I knew that I had nowhere. I knew the only thing that my kids had was me, regardless of how sick or tired or scared or whatever I was, that I could not put me first. Even though we're all taught if mom isn't good, she can't take care of the kids. For me, I had no time to cry. I had no time to be emotional. I had no time to, I don't, I don't want to say be a victim because I very much so was a victim. I just quickly had to come to terms that I was victimized. I could not control the situation. I could not derail it. So I was a victim at the time. And later I realized that I was victimized for those reasons. I could not control it. It was not anything that I egged on or brought on or continued to forgive and, and accept. Okay. So that's the other thing is that even for those women that, you know, have stayed in it longer or forgave and wished and hoped that things were different. We all do that. It's natural as well because our love and our desire sometimes will blind us. But once you yeah. get to that place where you said no more, no more, this is it, I'm drawing the line, then that from that moment on is where you take
take full responsibility for your actions. Anything prior to that, it was two of you. Okay. So I will say that forgiving yourself is number one, you know, forgiving the other person is definitely number two. When you're on your own and you're doing everything on your own, it's how you talk to yourself. What are you saying to yourself? Because if you're being negative, if you're talking to yourself in the mirror with negative comments, these are affirmations. When you believe what you believe, you start walking and talking in your belief. So if you're feeding yourself negative affirmations and you start walking in those and you start talking in those, that's what you're attracting. That's the environment you're giving to your children. And that's becoming your belief system. And it's really hard to get out of that when you're in it. And it's very easy to get into it because you're devastated. So and that's a part of that PTSD, right? So for mm-hmm. that post-traumatic growth, it's a daily conscious decision. It's being aware of who you are. And if you're not completely aware of who you are, then be completely aware of who you're not. Because as soon as you have self-awareness, your actions change. You're aware of how you're feeling based on what you're faced with or the decisions that you need to make. And you can be more intentional with your thought process in making the decisions opposed to just knee-jerk reacting and doing what you think is what's needed right now and basing your decisions off of emotions. It's a lot easier said than done. I'm clearly aware of that because I've been there. However, it is doable. You learn how to talk to yourself in a way you would talk to someone you love, whether it's your child, your sister, your brother, your best friend, your mother. Learn to talk to yourself in that same loving manner, in that same chastising voice when you need to snap somebody out of it. You give yourself that same amount of love and unconditional support that you would give to somebody else because we're our biggest critics we'll harm ourselves and hurt ourselves definitely yes we do we do and i'll share with you that when my daughter was in her 20s and she was moving out she said to me mom i hate that you went through everything that you went through i respect and love you for who you are because you could have jumped off the bridge so many times and checked out so many times you know she says you know she she just she has i love it <laughs> i do and she <laughs> said to me she said but i have to tell you something and I have to be honest with you about it. And I said, of course, you know, what is it? it?" She said, as close as you were, as the helicopter mom that you were, I know that you were focused on my safety and, and protecting me, providing and protecting. I know those were your main focus to provide and protect. She said, but you know what, mom, you were right next to me and I couldn't feel you. I had no, you were not emotionally available for me at all, ever. My initial reaction was like, what did you just say? What? (laughs) You know, what? Yeah. And I realized that I was having that reaction. And I said, you know, I looked at her and I said, I'm going to I'm going to do what I need to do to fix that, because my love language is 100 percent action. My love language was absolutely to protect and provide. And I felt that that was everything. And now I'm learning that I have some short shortcomings, that there was the biggest thing that I wanted to do in providing and protecting 
protecting was definitely her heart. So to know that I was the one that was inflicting this pain, that I am causing this boy, it took me to to my very lonely, sad childhood. And to even think that I created any sort of replica of that to my own daughter. Oh my gosh, I was boohooing for days. <laughs> I could not accept it. It took so long for me to even be like, oh my gosh, like to even know what to do. So this was about five years ago. Ever since then, I have been seeking self-help and outside help. You know, obviously when 20 years ago, when I, when I had my, my son, money was tight and mental health, health and well-being and all those things were not even something that we spoke about. Those were not in existence at that time. So as these things started to surface again, five years ago, I really started digging deep. I knew I needed to figure something out. So I did some, I did some workbooks on abandonment. I did workbooks on emotional voids. I learned emotional awareness. I learned emotional intelligence. I learned how to, how to identify where your emotions reside in your body. I've taken some courses uh, I'm a certified life coach through Integrative Wellness Academy. I'm a certified high performance coach through the High Performance Academy with Brendan Burchard. I've taken a few classes with Tony Robbins. I've taken a few classes with John Maxwell. I've done some community work, directly working with internal affairs, directly working with uh, legislation, and and I have sought out holistic healing. You know how to how to have your chakras aligned, what energy levels are, you know, what Reiki is, how to remedy illnesses with herbs, how to eat certain foods and have certain juices in order to to combat certain diseases and to have energy and to bring happiness and joy. There's there's so much that is intertwined that the Lord provides for us all these resources. All these natural all in natural yeah, all the natural yeah. foods and the and herbs uh, to really heal your body from the inside out. Uh, so that really has a, a great impact uh, on your well-being. But as you said, nobody talked about it before. Nobody spoke about it. Nobody really looked into it. As a matter of fact, they, you know, long ago, doctors didn't see that as a healing. They, they looked at it as a uh, maybe something juju or something that shouldn't even be or pharmaceutical companies didn't see that as being uh, for your health. It was all these medication, more medication, which just masks the problem rather than heal. So yes. So, I mean, your story is such a oh, wow a changing story that can change anyone and I can see how impactful that has been on you I want to be mindful of your time but I think there is just so much there that you can talk about and you can give more to our guests but I can see that that led you into so many different directions and sometimes we don't realize that when we go through the pain we will pass it on to our children as well and you were unaware of that but also what I wanted to to draw on is that your daughter saved your life basically when you were sitting on you and was 
hitting you in your head, by you hearing that voice and not realizing you've never heard your daughter like that, it just spurs something within you that gave you that inner strength that you were able to push him off uh, off of you. Not only was he going to probably kill you, but he would have killed your unborn child as well. And so I'm grateful that, you know, you had the, the strength to to really get yourself out of that situation. Is there anything else that you would want to, to say? I know there is lots more you can say, Agape, because there is just so much. When I read <laughs> your profile, there's just so much that you can you can bring and you can really help those that have gone through domestic abuse, domestic violence, even though you never thought, they probably never even thought that that would have happened to you, although you had your childhood. But how... What else? Uh, how can we bring this to a, I wouldn't say a close, because I think there is so much you can bring again by being a guest at some point where you can, you know, take up from where you left off in terms of past to post-traumatic growth. Uh, I think that's a really big topic uh, and it's more that needs to be talked about when it comes to being and um, going through experiencing abuse. Yeah, definitely. And there's obviously so much that I left out because, you know, Time is limited. And, you know, I I will share, I will share that the residual effects that come from a violent relationship, a toxic relationship, whether it's verbal, financial, physical, I mean, there's a long list of abuse that falls under domestic violence. The residual effects take place. Society expects us to move on. And, you know, moving on is the physical thing that's moving on equates to moving out, Mm -hmm. moving on is more of that mental, physical walk. And one thing that I do want to share is that, because I don't want to come across like I'm some sort of hero and the post-traumatic guru, you know, listen, there's there's a lot, lot. There's a lot that comes with that. And it's it's the dedication that you need to have to yourself and that commitment that you have for towards your future. And 10 years, 10 years after that incident, I needed to have surgery and all parts that were used to save my life that night. Okay. Every single, every single body part that was used to fight for our lives that night needed surgical repair 10 years later. And I'm still dealing with effects and it's 20 years later. You know, I I have another surgery coming up because from that night and it catches up to us. And it's not just about the physical component. Like I said, it's, it's the mental and the emotional. We can move a hundred times but we live in our heads. Mm-hmm. And if and if we do not pay attention to our mindset, what we pay for ignoring it is much worse, much worse. And so right now I have, you know, some programs through my coaching business, which is called Be Your Incredible Self. I have three different programs that I help people realign their, their mental and emotional well-being and actually going through a transformation. And I also have a nonprofit that I'm pre-launching I'm getting ready to launch. And that is for real-time victims of domestic violence where they need to relocate for safety. I have sponsors and donators that are aligned with the mission to help those real-time victims relocate without having to leave their belongings behind for safety. And so I'm also aligning with some other nonprofits that have different programs available for transformational moments in life, whether it's a new career because of a, a violent situation or a 
hypnotherapy because of a situation, we are coming together and we are building a strong community. I just want all the listeners to know that the statistics are one out of three. You're not by yourself. I know we don't talk about it, but but we also live with it and we don't have to live with it. We can bring it to light and share it to help other people, especially our future generation where the this is not talked about in school. Narcissism is not talked about. It's not taught. It's not something that you can say, this is what it looks like. But if there's enough awareness that's brought to the table, that can be, you know, a resource for people to just go and find, whether it's online or in the school, on the board, just something where people have resources where they know how to get them. That is what I feel fails our community today is the knowledge on where to obtain the resources when they're needed real time. Yeah, I totally agree with you because only yesterday I I did a podcast and it was about women being killed. And I mean, it's such a, a pandemic really in terms of the amount of women being killed every single day, 137 women being killed every single day. It's mind-boggling. And as you say, one in three, and we know that out of the 87,000 women that would experience abuse, 30,000 or nearly 30,000 or more would die from abuse by a family member or their ex-partner. So it's really about bringing highlight and it's all about educating, bringing that education to, and it, it as you said, it needs to start in the schools. I think we need to have curriculum now where they start teaching the young men and the young women what to expect and as you say, where to find the information. So the work that we're doing, I'm so glad that you mentioned it, that the work that we're doing now is about preparing for the next generation because we, we no one is meant to dominate anyone. That's not God's plan. God's plan is for us to live in harmony and for a man and a woman to become one unit, not take advantage or abuse. I believe that the work you're doing is really, really good. I, I am associated with an organization as well. I have ruined one million meters in a year to raise to raise funds for them because they help women and men who have gone through abuse. So they provide homes and training and all of that. So that's something that I'm really passionate about as well in terms of ending domestic abuse and, and violence against women, young girls and boys, because we know the sex trade as well. So, you know, so much, it impacts so many lives and it's devastating. It is. And it does not discriminate. It doesn't matter how much money you come from or don't come from. It does not discriminate. Oh, Agape, thank you so much. I appreciate you for being on the program with me. There's just so much to talk about. And I'm so glad that you agreed and you came on and you shared so much to our listeners. And I know that they would get something from it. So I just want to say a hearty, hearty thank you to you for saying yes and being here. I appreciate you so much. The woman you are, the woman you have become, and the the woman you are going to be 
you say you still we all still growing and i just want to say oh my gosh i appreciate you i appreciate you so much the feelings are mutual it's been an honor to be here with you and like i said we we're finding each other so it's time to build these communities that were that we're putting the foundation down for and i'd just i appreciate you and all your work and all that you're doing and i'm looking forward to future endeavors yes sir. i'm looking forward to it as well so you know we are going to keep in touch and we're just going to keep growing the growing our community and making it a safer place for everyone so thank you wow that was powerful that was a wonderful session with agape she has so much to tell us and i'm going to get her back on the program so she can tell you so much more you know domestic violence is something that we are going to get rid of we are going to work hard at it to get rid of it so i am i'm really blessed i'm really really blessed wisdom 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 is the principal thing Therefore, get wisdom and with all that getting, get understanding. Proverbs 4, 7, 9. I pray this episode has given you wisdom so you can have an unstoppable life. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, you can follow me on Facebook at Werner. Haywood 3 on Instagram at Bernard Haywood underscore and you can follow my website www.haywood.com to regain your resilience, how to build resilience and work on and elevate your well-being. Uh, three powerful practices, three steps that you are going to take to do that and you're going to carry on doing that. Thank you for listening. I I hope this has been really helpful to you. So I want to say thank you for spending time with us today on the Unstoppable Life podcast. So speak to you soon. Take care and God bless.